I don't have a deep skill in any one area. And for years, I was worried about that. In fact, it hurt my confidence because I wasn't the expert in accounting and I wasn't the expert in marketing and I wasn't the expert in product design. And people would look at me and say, you need to focus. You need to focus on one industry and you need to focus on one function. And it took me a while to have the confidence to look at the people that told me that because they had great intentions and to tell them that that is awesome advice for somebody else, but not for me. Because my superpower is the ability to know a little bit about a lot of things and connect the dots that nobody would ever connect. That's where my creativity comes from. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sanira Madani and Shannon Monson. And we believe that you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue, and we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who have made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so that you can do it too. You're a real business now. Class is officially in session. Hello, ladies. I'm so excited for today's episode. I have on my friend, Laura Hodgson, and Laura is a firecracker. I'm so pumped on having her today. We're just laughing right now, talking about her photographic memory. Um, and it's, she's just, she's just a hoot. She's a incredible entrepreneur who has launched so many businesses, so many successful businesses. And she's now, she'll tell you more about it, but she's now, I think on her third major company. And Laura is also a graduate of Harvard business school. She's literally a genius. And I can't wait for all of you guys to learn from Laura and her incredible entrepreneurial experience. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks, Sanira. It is so great to be with you guys. Um, and I'm not a genius, but I'm very lucky to have had a lot of great adventures in my life, all because of the amazing people that I've been around. Um, so yeah, my background, I'm an aerospace engineer, which is great for all the rocket science jokes. Okay. Um, I'm not a genius. I'm not a genius, I, but I am a rocket scientist. Well, the reason that I'm a rocket scientist is when I went off to college, um, I really actually wanted to study bioengineering and Georgia Tech didn't have that as a major at the time. And everyone told me that aerospace engineering was the hardest and I have a complete character affliction, which is if you tell me something's the hardest, I have to do it. Um, so I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I was like, oh, well, if that's the hardest, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but that is definitely sort of in my DNA to tackle what everyone thinks are impossible problems. Um, so what I discovered from myself in engineering, I had a professor one time that told me I had an engineering mind and a liberal arts personality. And when okay. you tell a 17-year-old girl that, I thought, I needed medication. That sounded like schizophrenia. So, but I, I later came to realize that that's actually a positive thing, um, that I love the problem solving side of, of engineering, but I love working with people. And that's really what drove me more into the business world and ultimately into entrepreneurship was helping people. That's incredible. Yeah. So, so you went to Georgia Tech and then kind of like, like take us back to your story because I want to, you know, I, I always love to dig back and kind of understand where the entrepreneurial side of you came about, learn a little bit more about your background. So you're this rocket scientist, you graduate from Georgia Tech, then what? 
So, you know, it's interesting. It actually, my entrepreneurial journey started long before that when I was eight years old in third grade. And a couple of my friends had these amazingly cool hair barrettes that had ribbon intertwined through them with beads on them. And I was so jealous because I thought they were so beautiful, but I couldn't afford to buy them. And so my mother and I were like, well, we could probably make those. So she took me down to the local, you know, arts and crafts store. They didn't have Michael's back then. And I bought some barrettes and I bought some ribbon and I bought some beads and I made my own. And then my friends liked those better and started saying, oh my gosh, where did you get those? I want to buy them. And so I was like, well, I'll make some for you. And so I started selling them. And then after a while, the lady that owns the store, because I would come in every week to buy ribbon, she was like, what are you doing with all of this ribbon? (laughs) And so I showed her my barrettes and she said, oh my gosh, I could sell those for you. And so all of a sudden I started getting orders and then I was employing my sister and my friends and I was paying everybody to make barrettes after school. And I remember it was fall because it was the Georgia, Georgia Tech football game. And the woman ordered several hundred pair of red and black and several hundred pair of yellow and black. And my mother promptly told her that my business was closing because I had homework to do. So my mother killed my first business. Oh my goodness. That is crazy. That's not like your traditional, like Girl Scout cookies. Like what no. I sold. You literally were, you had purchase orders for your products selling at local retail shops. I did. And it was so, but back in 1975, there was no such thing as like becoming an entrepreneur for an eight-year-old girl. So my mother, I still tease my mother that she killed my first business. Um, But, you know, from there, I really went through traditional schooling, traditional engineering school. I had my eyes set on being the first female engineering professor at Georgia Tech, and I was going to go get a PhD. And and I was really pursuing a very traditional path. Um, But again, that 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 part of my DNA that when I hear someone tell me they have a problem and I want to help them solve it constantly led me outside of that traditional path. I always had this little side project where I was trying to help somebody solve a problem. Um, And so after Georgia Tech, um, I actually went and studied in Japan. And it's another funny story. I was at Georgia Tech on a track and field scholarship. And my academic advisor came to me one day and said, there's this really cool program that the Defense Department is doing, and they're going to select 25 engineering students from the United States and send them to Japan to study Japanese. And I am certain that I looked at her like she had five eyes. Like, what? have you not heard the Laura Hodson plan? Like, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to study, I'm going to teach aerospace engineering. And she looked at me and she said, when will you ever get a chance to do something you would never do? And I didn't have an answer, which is rare, because usually I'd make one up. What a great question. (laughs) It was an awesome question and I didn't have an answer. So I applied for this program and I got selected and I literally was sent to Terre Haute, Indiana to start studying Japanese. And then I had to sign an agreement that I would speak no English while I was in Japan. So my charades got really good because I didn't speak very well. (laughs) And so I survived. I survived a summer living in very rural Japan where no one had ever seen a foreigner. And I learned Japanese. And that was really when that spark in me hit. And I said, you know what? I understand what my professor means that I have an engineering mind and a liberal arts personality because I love working with people and I love the impossible problems that don't have a formula solution to them. 
And so I came back and decided I wasn't going to go get a PhD in engineering. I didn't have a job offer because I hadn't even interviewed because I was all set to get my PhD. And I was just very lucky that USA Today every year features the top 25 students in the United States. And they had selected me as one of those 25. So people started calling and saying, hey, would you be interested in consulting? And I was like, I don't know what that is, but tell me about it because I'm looking for a job. <laughs> so you're like, how old are you? You're like in your early 20s. Back then? Yeah. So you're like when USA, so when USA Today did that piece. So you're, you're like eight years old. You have a successful business that your mother shuts down. You are obviously like you're an athlete. You're on a full scholarship. You're, you're studying rocket science and engineering. And then you go to Japan for like this crazy experience with the like chosen out of like 20 students in the United States, come back. And then you have this huge feature that is just crazy. What what an incredible life experience so early, well, Laura. And you know, your comment when I told you what my advisor said, when will you ever have the chance to do something you would never do? That was probably the most important question anyone had ever asked me in my life. Because I think before that, when adults would say to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I had this great response. Oh, I'm going to be the first female aerospace engineering professor at Georgia Tech. And their response was always that they were so impressed by that, that I kept saying it. But I didn't really want to do that. It's just I was getting this positive reinforcement from adults. And I thought, oh, well, that's impressive. I guess I should want to do that. And so her asking me, when will you ever get a chance to do something you would never do, totally shocked me out of my comfort zone. And not only did I go to Japan for the summer, I'd never been outside the United States before that, except for to Niagara Falls. So for me to go to Japan was crazy outside my comfort zone, not only from a language perspective, but a culture perspective. And that is the greatest gift she ever gave me. Because from that point on, whenever I had an opportunity to do something new, I would ask myself, when will I ever get the chance to do something like this again? And it's like, I went from why should I do that to why not? I yeah. love that. I feel like that that professor and that advice probably has stuck with you even in like all of the, the things that you've done, which I'm, I'm pumped oh, to keep sure. talking about. Yeah. But it's so interesting that you talk about the response that you got from people when you told them that you were going to be the first aerospace professor. That is impressive. And if a young girl tells me that even now, I'd be like, oh my God, that's so cool. Um, and that was encouraging. But at the same time, you're doing it. You're, you think you want to do that because you're appreciating that response that people like that excitement that people are having versus maybe that's not what you we're meant to do. Well, I think that is one of the biggest dangers that we do both to ourselves and to young people is if you think about it, the people around you will always encourage you to do something more if you're good at it. So early in life, if you're good at something, if you show a tendency or a skill, all the people that love you will say, oh my gosh, you're so great at that. You should do it more. And I think for many of us, we get pretty far into our career before we realize that what we're good at and what we truly love may not always be the same thing. And if I could help young people realize that sooner, it's okay to be good at something you don't love. And I'll, I'll admit mine, which you're going to laugh at, Sunira, when you hear, because it, given what you know I do now, um, I do not like to do spreadsheets. I do not like to do all the analytical stuff, even though I rock at it. I am so good at that stuff. 
But if I find an extra hour in my week, I will always fill it with a new client meeting, a partner meeting, because my personality, I get energized by people. So sitting in my office doing accounting or spreadsheets, even though I'm good at it, it's, it's not what I love. And that's what that professor saw way back when I was 17, when he said, you have an engineering mind and a liberal arts personality. And it is so true. Because my energy, my core is energized from people, even though, yeah, I'm really analytical in my mind and I'm good at it. I don't love it. So, which is funny because, you know, I run a company in the payments and finance space and yet I don't like finance. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I'm with you there. I run a payments company as well and I have a degree in finance, but I actually obviously love the opposite. So I do get the struggle. That's I love her soulmates. Yeah. That's why we are. And actually this um a little about a little bit about how Laura and I met. Laura is one of my Ernst and Young winning women sisters. So every year Ernst and Young recognizes um about 12 women across the nation um, as their winning women. And they put them through an incredible program. It's an incredible mentorship program. And you get to meet um, highly successful entrepreneurs doing crazy, amazing things. I honestly felt so humbled uh, to be in that class with all of our, like all of those women. Um, Everyone's just doing incredible, incredible things. So that's, that's awesome. So, you know, you have all these great experiences. You come back, uh, you're, you know, learning about consulting, Um, What happens next? Yeah. So um, actually, when I came back from Japan, I finished my degree at tech. So I went once while I was still a student. And then I went again when I graduated. Um, And I had also applied for a red scholarship, which I was a finalist for, but did not end up receiving. And so I realized that I wanted to go to business school and um, applied and, and attended Harvard Business School. And while I was up at at Harvard, I really sort of all of a sudden, my eyes were open to all these other careers that I never knew existed. You know, when you're studying aerospace engineering, your future is defined by are you going to work for NASA or Lockheed or McDonnell Douglas? Like it is a very small list of places that you're going to go work. And so I didn't know what investment banking was. I didn't know what any of these other things were. And I just met the most fascinating people from all over the world who did so many cool things that honestly, I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. And remember, I had just been told by my professor, what would you never do? So, you know, here I was just like, kind of enamored with what everyone was doing. But in that time, I also took a class called self-assessment and career development, which to be honest, I took because I thought it was going to be easy to balance out my like advanced financial negotiations class. And it turned out to be the hardest class ever because you had to write a case about yourself and the decisions you'd made. And then the whole class, it was anonymous. So they didn't know who each one was about, but the whole class sort of analyzed your decisions. So imagine sitting in a classroom with all these people going, why in the world did this person choose that? And you're like, dang. Um, well, it didn't it prep you that is, isn't that that's social media today? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> All exactly. your decisions analyzed 24 seven. Right. Exactly. Except in this class, people actually read the essay and then analyzed it as opposed to social media where nobody reads anything anyway. They just, you know, throw out their opinion for fun. Um, so when I came out of HBS, um, I realized that I loved Again, I loved the problem-solving side of consulting. I loved working with all these creative people. I loved the, the, the variety of problems that we solved. But what I also realized is 
in my DNA, I always wanted to see if it worked. I never wanted to leave a client. And so I realized that I really wanted to go into a company and help build something. So um, I had offers to go back to consulting. I had offers to go back and actually do a PhD and teach at Harvard. Um, but what I realized is I wanted to go with something that was just being started. And so I actually went with a company called IXL. It was about, I think I was employee number 20. Um, we grew that company. We did about 48 acquisitions over the next couple of years. We were well over 3000 employees around the world with 26 offices. And I started out initially helping the CEO, just sort of doing special M&A projects. And about six months in, I went to him and I said, you know, this is great, but I really want to own something. Like, I want to own a P&L. I want to, um, I want to live and die on whether I can be successful or not. And he looked at me and he said the greatest thing ever. He said, you're too young for that. Like, I need to hire an experienced partner from a law, from a consulting firm or something. And I looked at him and I said, I will make you a deal. Let me start the retail and consumer products group and I will hire my boss. Now, secretly, I was like, we are not going to have to do that. But I promised him that I would get the group going and that I would look for the, you know, the perfect person to run it. Um, long story short, I got the group running. We were the most successful group at IXL. I didn't ever hire my boss. And ultimately, when IXL sold, it was, it was the retail group that I had built and one other group. So um, but I love that he challenged me. I mean, by telling me I can't do something that is for darn sure what I'm going to spend the rest of the day focused on. I know. I think that is definitely something that fuels most women. I yes. think, I, you know, I, I, I mean, that's part of my story was that I couldn't take no for an answer. And I was told that this was the, the craziest idea in the world to launch a subscription-based payment processor that we'd never make money, that this would go under, um, it's too transparent. It's not the way that the industry works. And I was pretty much laughed out of a room over a dozen times before I took the leap of faith on myself. Like I was my yeah. last choice, but I was like, you can't tell me that like, I can't. And that's it. Like that, yeah. then it's over. Then I'm going to do it. I totally agree. And I, and because of that, I worry sometimes with, I know we both have small children, um, you know, I worry when I see parents try to take all of that disappointment out of their kids' lives because it's that being told no, it's that being told you can't do something that, yeah, it hurts when it happens, but gosh, it fuels your future success. Mm -hmm. And so versus, versus the participation awards. Oh my gosh. I mean, I remember when my son was in first grade and he was invited to go to this Taekwondo competition and he was by far the youngest, the other kids were all older. And my husband and I looked at each other. We're like, we don't even know what a Taekwondo competition is like, but we show up at this huge auditorium and there is hundreds of people there. And these kids have to go out there like two at a time and do these routines and my husband looks at me, he's like, does our son even know a routine? I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, he's done Taekwondo after school. I have never seen him practice. And my husband's like, should we pull him? And I was like, no, but this is going to be epic. <laughs> so <laughs> sure enough, he gets down there. He totally forgets his routine. His shoulders slump. He starts crying like every other kid, you know, that's older on his little group gets a medal. He does not. He's hyperventilating. Aww. And it was heartbreaking. But, you know, we get in the car at the end of the day and he's like, I didn't get a medal. And I was like, no, you sure did not. But I explained to him that 
if you want a medal, if that's important to you, you have to practice. Like that's where skill comes from. And if you don't care about a medal, that's fine too, because I don't care about a medal. And if you just want to do this for fun, then just do it for fun. But don't be upset if you don't get a medal. And sure enough, that night while I'm making dinner, I see him in his playroom and he's practicing because we had to go back the next day. I mean, there was more fun in store. And we get back the next day and bless his heart. He like ekes out this, this bronze medal in one of his routines. But you know what? He had to bomb to know how important that practice was and to see the results of his efforts. And while it was so painful for me, I mean, if it had not happened, that kid decided to stick with it and by fifth grade got his black belt. And he never would have done that if we had made oh it easy God. for You're him. So my people, I love this. I love this. I know all my moms listening totally love this. And it's really difficult. Like as a mom, for sure, that you feel like you want to be there to support your kids. You don't want them to fall. And it's just an important reminder that we all have to fall to learn to get up. Like we all have to do it. And I think we have to remind ourselves that most of us have reached some form of success in life, not despite the challenges we went through, but because of them. And it's an important difference. It really is. It really is. So tell me about, so you're, you have this crazy career and okay. How many children do you have? How did you kind of manage um, working up to your first business? And I want to talk about one of your companies or your first company, your second company. And I want to talk about the challenges, how you grew it to, you know, hit the million dollars in revenue, um, all while also being a mother. Cause that is definitely near and dear to me. You know that, uh, for sure. So let's, let's get there. So, you know, after, after IXL, I actually was hired by one of my clients, which was um, Shaquille O'Neal and Mike Piazza and three of Nike's first employees were starting this footwear company. And my team at IXL had helped them write the business model and, and helped them raise some money. And again, I asked myself, like, this is so crazy. I'm going to commute to Los Angeles. I'm going to start this footwear company. But you know what? I'm 28 years old. I don't have kids yet. Now's the time to do something crazy. So I launched that business, commuted to LA for a year. Um, obviously, the the market crashed in 2001. So we ended up licensing the business to starter. I came back to Atlanta. My mother was picketing for grandchildren. I mean, she was not even discreet. She was sending me newspaper articles on folic acid and you know health for pregnant mothers. And I wasn't pregnant, um, but realized that she very much wanted me to be. So Um, you know, my husband and I decided that we did, you know, definitely want to have kids. Um, I got pregnant with my son and that was really when I, I, at the time I was helping run a real estate development company in Atlanta. And I realized that if I was going to be an awesome mom, I really needed to do my own thing. Um, because I'm a workaholic by nature. I love what I do when I'm doing it. And I don't apologize for that, but I knew that it would be very easy for me to sort of dive in and kind of work through my whole pregnancy and kind of miss his baby years. And I didn't want to do that. I was sort of protecting myself from myself. And so I left that business. Um, I partnered up with another woman that I had been classmates in Leadership Atlanta with. Um, And actually, I don't normally say who she is because now everyone knows who she is. But my business partner, Stacey Abrams, um, who now the whole world knows who she is since she's a potential candidate for vice president. Um, But Stacey and I started a consulting company. 
Um, when I was pregnant, I had my son and I came up with this idea for a spill-proof bottled water what? for children. I'm sorry. It took me like 40 seconds to totally digest. That's <laughs> crazy. Stacey Abrams is, was your partner? St- yeah. Stacey and I have started all three of our businesses together. So oh yeah, Stacey and I are you... co-founders of Insomnia, Nourish, and Now Now Account. So yeah. That is awesome. So up until a couple of years ago, when I said who my business partner was, nobody knew who that was unless you lived in Georgia and she was a state representative. But um, now obviously she's doing amazing things on a, on a larger political scale. Um, so, you know, she and I were doing consulting together. She was running for state office. Um, I was pregnant. I had my son. She was elected. We looked at each other and we're like, we should do something together. And I had this idea for a spill-proof bottled water for kids because everywhere I went for work meetings, my son was in a baby carrier and he was always spilling either his bottle or his sippy cup. Um, And so I was like, somebody has got to create a spill-proof bottled water. And to be honest, I went home one night to my husband who worked at Coke at the time at Coca-Cola. And I said, I want to meet the head of Dasani. I have a packaging innovation for you guys. And two weeks later, the meeting had not been set up yet. So I demanded, I was like, dude, what's up with my meeting? And he said, you don't just march in and meet the head of Dasani. I said, well, you should. I mean, I have an idea. And so he did introduce me to someone who had retired from Coca-Cola who said, you have a great idea. Why don't you just do it yourself? So Stacy and I started this company called Nourish. Um, we bootstrapped it. We had some friends and family that gave us a little bit of money to get the molds made and start making these spill-proof bottled waters. And we were initially selling at um, airport stores like Hudson News and Parody Shops, and we were selling at children's boutique stores. And then about a year into the business, we got our first big order from Whole Foods, and we were like high-fiving each other. Yay, we bagged the big deal. And then we were like, oh, crap, what do we do now? We have to ship truckloads of product. And they want an invoice that says net 30, which means they're not going to pay us for 30 days. So how do we pay our suppliers and our employees? And so we went to our suppliers and we begged them to give us 60 days to pay. And they should have said no. I mean, we had no balance sheet. We were two crazy ladies. Um, But they said, we love your vision. We're totally behind you. We'll give you 60 days. So we shipped that first truckload to Whole Foods distributor. Um, The 30th day came, a check did not arrive. The 60th day came, and I'm apologizing to my suppliers because I can't pay them yet. Um, And I remember dropping my son at daycare one morning, and I sat in my car and I cried with my head on the steering wheel because I just thought, how stupid am I? I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm doing everything right. I've got this great product, and everybody's ordering it. But essentially, I'm the free bank to Whole Foods and nobody's paying me on time. And so I had a really good cry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That sounds I mean, this is crazy. So you have the company, you're facing another problem, like you're facing a big problem. And then now I know where you're going. This is where now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sat there and cried. And then at some point I said to myself, you know, heck no, this is not going to be what takes you down, you know, pull on your big girl pants and let's get back out there. And I I think I literally said that out loud to myself in the car by myself. Um, and and, because I do talk to myself a lot in the mirror, like this is going to be an awesome day. We're going to fix this. And so I did, I called my supplier and I was like, I need your help. It's taking forever to get paid by Whole Foods. And I feel awful that I can't pay you. And he was like, Laura, you just have a working capital issue. Everybody has that. Now you do not tell an aerospace engineer that everybody has a problem because I have to solve it. 
And so I was like, what do you mean everybody has this problem? He said, well, nobody gets paid when they deliver. Everybody sends an invoice and they wait. And I was like, well, that's just wrong. Small businesses should not be the ones funding the entire U.S. economy. Whole Foods has a lot more money than I do, and it's a lot cheaper. They should be borrowing money and paying me faster, not me having to borrow money from somewhere. So Stacy and I were sitting at lunch one day, and I was like, wait a minute. This restaurant never waits to get paid. That is so unfair because they take credit cards. So I marched back to Whole Foods, and I said, why don't you just pay me with a credit card? And they said, well, no, because if you, if we pay you with a card, we now owe the issuing bank. And if we don't pay it on its due date, we get assessed interest and penalties. But if we don't pay your net 30 invoice on the 30th day, nothing happens. And I was pissed. <laughs> I was like, that is so wrong. Not only am I a free bank to Whole Foods, but I suck at it. And so Stacy and I decided we were going to come up with a payment system that allowed businesses, if you're selling to another business or government and they won't pay you with a credit card, if they pay you with a credit card, you should take it and run. Um, but if they won't pay you with a card, you can use our now account to get paid immediately in a way that feels like taking a credit card. So you don't have to borrow money or factor or do any of those things that will kill your business. That's how a girl who hates finance started a payments company. <laughs> That's Awesome. You are so impressive. All the things that you've done in such a short amount of time is so impressive. A lot of women that are listening might have an idea, but they don't even know where to get started, right? So right. that's one challenge. The second challenge is maybe that they've gotten started, but they aren't the expert in, like, you were the expert in accounting, you were the expert in spreadsheets, you were the expert in people. That's not normal uh, for most humans, right? Like we're good at one thing uh, right. and that might be it. So how do you, you know, yeah. like, let's talk to those people listening. So I think there's, I think there's really three things. Um, the first you talked about confidence and, you know, I've always, my mother's always asked me, where does this confidence come from? Like, how are you able to stand up in front of people when my mother doesn't even want to sit at the head table? She doesn't ever want to be seen. And, you know, I didn't know where it came from for a very long time. And I realized it probably after I left IXL um, to start the footwear company. And I realized it again because of a question that somebody asked me. When I said I was going to leave IXL to go start this footwear company, I remember my boss, our chairman, saying, why would you leave? Our stock is, you know, we had just gone public. Our stock was going through the roof. And he was like, you know, what we do is so amazing. And I remember looking at him and saying, I don't care about the what. I only care about the so what. And that was my epiphany. It's where my confidence comes from. I think that most of us are told that we have to do what we are passionate about. And that is wrong because the what doesn't matter. The so what, the impact that it has on people, that's what you have to be passionate about. And if you're passionate about the impact that you're having, then the what can change over time and that confidence can never be taken away from you. So when I meet people that have like, oh, I'm trying to start this business. I'm trying to find this great idea. I'm trying to find this, this widget that I love. Your love shouldn't be in the product. It should be in the impact the product has on its users. And if that's where your passion is, then your confidence is unstoppable. And it doesn't matter what your skill set is because you will find the people with the skills to help you make it happen. And so, you know, the second thing, Sanira, you're absolutely right. 
I don't have a deep skill in any one area. And for years, I was worried about that. In fact, it hurt my confidence because I wasn't the expert in accounting and I wasn't the expert in marketing and I wasn't the expert in product design. And people would look at me and say, you need to focus. You need to focus on one industry and you need to focus on one function. And it took me a while to have the confidence to look at the people that told me that because they had great intentions and to tell them that that is awesome advice for somebody else, but not for me. Because my superpower is the ability to know a little bit about a lot of things and connect the dots that nobody would ever connect. That's where my creativity comes from, is I can learn something in the footwear business and connect it to the payments industry, or I can learn something in consulting and connect it to, um, you know, my, my nourish water product. I knew nothing about water. And so I think your confidence comes from having a passion in the impact, not the what. And I think that you have to acknowledge what your superpower is. It may not be one function. It may not be one industry. That's okay. Don't let people tell you it's not because it's what makes you different. It's what makes you important. And, um, And then the third thing really has to do with this whole idea of, you know, running a company at the same time that I'm a mom, at the same time that I'm, you know, chair of a charter school and, People used to ask me how I balance it all. And I think women love to debate whether we can balance it all or not. The reality is it's the wrong question. And I can answer it for you. You can have work-life balance. You don't want it. It sucks. Because balance to me is like two kids on a seesaw at the playground. And if two kids are on a seesaw and it's balanced, you know one thing. Well, you know two things. Number one, nobody's having any fun because everybody's dangling. But the other thing you realize is everything's average. And I have no desire to be an average mom, an average wife, or an average CEO. So I long ago gave up the goal of balance, and I started to focus on optimization. So when I am with you, whether that is with my son playing Legos, or whether that is in a company meeting, I am 100% with you. But at the end of that hour, I am somewhere else. So you better be prepared. You better use your time well. Because if I'm trying to multitask, I'm doing everything less well. This is why we're best friends, Laura. I love you. I love everything. I feel like I'm I'm re-inspired, like listening to this episode, like just airing right now. And you also talked about your zone of genius is what I call it, right? So, so many women out here, we feel like we have to have all of the answers, right? We have to have this perfect team, this perfect process, the perfect time. It's never a perfect time, perfect process, and you're not going to have everything around you. You just have to get started. Yeah. Like, Laura, you're such a perfect example of being having success and then having this problem within your business that you're running and then solving for another one, right? I mean, that is just, it's so incredible. And I know that my audience is super, super inspired. Less than 2% of female founders ever hit a million in revenue, right? And I feel like, I know so many incredible women that have had that. And now I'm learning about the other side. I didn't know that this was so, that this felt like this was a unicorn. Like this is a unicorn that less than 2% of female founders ever hit that mark. And so it got me really, you know, soul searching and deep diving of like, what is it that has made all my friends successful? What is it? Where am I that I, I see these successes and that we're part of this very small 2% club. And I want to share some tactical 
you know, points of how you got there. Yeah. What, how, what made it, what made you get to the, to the million dollars? So I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on how we can change that statistic. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, it's interesting people who grow up sort of in corporate America and these large companies always talk about the glass ceiling. I think what limits women in the world of entrepreneurship is the exact opposite. I call it the sticky floor. Um, we are our biggest enemy. We are what limit ourselves. And I think it's from a couple of things. One, it's that many times we are, we are absolute perfectionists. We're used to being surrounded by our children and people who, I mean, we've all done this, right? There's five things to get done. And rather than letting our kids do it, we're like, I'll just do it myself. It'll be easier. And so we get into this mindset of doing everything ourselves. And we are the limiting factor because you can't do everything. And I think most businesses that don't make it past that threshold, it's because we're unwilling to let other people do things. And it is not comfortable and it is scary and they're not going to do it right the first time and they're not going to do it the way you do it. And I mean, that, this is true in life too, right? With your kids. How many times do we do things for our kids that we really should just let them do and let them do it wrong? Um, but we do it ourselves because it's easier. It's more convenient. Um, and I think we do the same thing in business. We don't let go. We become the bottleneck. And the reality is, if you're the bottleneck, you'll never get past a million in revenue. It's not possible. You don't have enough hours in your day. So I think that the sticky floor of sort of letting ourselves um, let other people do things for us, let other people you develop their skills, let other people bring their expertise to the table. Um, so it is about building that team and it's about letting that team do what they do and not having to be in the critical path of every single thing that gets done to me is, is the biggest limiting factor. Um, you know, I think the second thing is that typically when you reach that threshold, we all reach it and you're going to reach it several times in your business. You'll get to the point where you're doing a couple hundred thousand and you feel like you're on a treadmill and you can't get any further. And then you'll break through that and you'll get to the next threshold and you'll be on a treadmill again. Um, and I really do think that, you know, part of breaking through that is allowing yourself to break your own mold. So sometimes our business is doing one thing and it's working well and we're unwilling to break it so that it can do something even better. We're unwilling to try something slightly differently. And it does take, you know, each time you break to that next threshold, you take a little bit of a risk. You do. And it is, it's really about, it's, it's not about going from zero to a million, right? It's right. the next step and it's the next step. And what got you from zero to six figures is not what's going to get you from six to seven figures right. or seven figures to eight figures. I think that's probably been one of my biggest lessons is, um, you know, even as I've scaled my business, it looked, it looked different at every next milestone. Yeah. And that is something that we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Like even getting to that point and you feel comfortable, as soon as you feel comfortable, it's, you have to change. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to challenge again. And if you're not going to grow and get uncomfortable, the growth is not going to happen. The other day I was with a, a group of CEOs and this one person made the most interesting statement. He said, the key to scaling a business is staying alive long enough to get lucky. And he is so true. Oh <laughs> he God. is so right. <laughs> I mean, you feel that treadmill that you're running on. It is. You stay alive. You stay scrappy. You try new things. It will happen, but you have to stay alive long enough to get lucky. It's funny. I always say the harder I work, the luckier I get, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. This has been just so incredible. I do have one more topic that I do want to talk about. You definitely have an incredible network, something that I feel like you and I both share, and it's been part of why we've been successful. A lot of the women um, that are listening, they may be online influencers. They may be you know, stuck at home in their, in their digital worlds. How do you build a team, right? Like how did you, you know, you met... Uh, Stacy through leadership Atlanta, right? That's our, yep. um, right. And so you were out and about in the community and that's how you meet incredible people. But what about those people that um, have digital businesses, online businesses, any tips of building a team? Because I think that this is where a lot of our women get hung up is sure. how to even, uh, you know, connect with people. And that even could be in a digital way. So I would love to kind yeah. of hear your perspective on that. Well, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I look at every single person on my team, I always hire mindsets over skill sets. I can teach you almost anything I need you to do. We're not performing brain surgery at now account, but I can't teach you how to think. I can't teach you how to treat a customer. Well, I can't teach you how to be faced with a problem and tackle it with calmness and grace as opposed to panic. And so even if you have a digital business, the reality is your life is not 100% digital. I am certain that you go to the grocery store or you go to a hair salon or you go to um, you know, a movie every once in a while. Like You actually do leave your house. And it may not be for work. It may be for pleasure or for you know, just home things. When you're out and about, talk to everybody you meet. Everyone in my family teases me because I never get off an airplane without two new friends. So if you're one of those people who doesn't like to talk, you do not want to sit next to me. Um, but that's an amazing thing. I have clients at now account who happen to sit next to me on an airplane. You will find out about what's going on if you sit next to me on an airplane. But I think that even like my son teases me when we're at the grocery store, instead of like not even looking at the woman who's checking me out, I, I talk to her. How is your day? How is everything going? Thank you so much for what you do. And I have hired people before that were bagging my groceries because they gave me such great friendly service. I give them my card. And I'm like, I would love if you're ever looking for something else. And, you know, I had this one kid, he was a, he was a college student at the local community college and he was working at public supermarkets and he was so freaking friendly to me. And, you know, meanwhile, everyone else looks like they hate their job. And I was like, look, when you graduate, I would love to talk to you about coming to work at my company. Um, so you do meet people every day, whether you're digital or not, unless you live 100% in the digital world, which I've yet to meet a person who does. Well, that's probably why I wouldn't have met him. Um, <laughs> then you do interact with people, but you got to be, you've got to be it, living in the present and notice all the people you interact with and talk to them, ask them how their day is. That's where you find great people. That's awesome. Well, Laura, this has just been so incredible. I just, oh, I just, I love you guys so much. Like this sisterhood has been so incredible for me. I feel like we've gotten to know each other over the last year, but it's just so amazing to deep, just go further and get to know your story more. You are a genius by the way. And, um, you know, I just love everything that you're doing and everything that you stand for. And we wish you so much success. Where can we find you? Where can we find your companies, um, and send you some love? Yeah. So you can find us at nowaccount.com. So N-O-W-A-C-C-O-U-N-T.com. And you can reach me through that website. You can see all of our, about our clients. You can see about what we do. 
And um, if anybody has any questions or I love to brainstorm with people and, and help, you know, you're welcome to pick my brain anytime. Just reach out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening. And I hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Follow us at CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes that you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building million dollar businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love the show, screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way.